Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. It is August 31st, 2020. This is Atlanta United FC Weekly, a Home Before Dark podcast. Yeah. No, nope. the cork, pop, cork popping. I ruined it. I tried. Ah. I am Tim Herb. As always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Mr. Kevin Bradley. Below me, Dan James. To my, I can never get the mirroring right. To my Don't right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and we're joined by a special guest, the Athletics Felipe Cardenas. Thank you so much. It's been a long time in the making. I feel like it has, and we've DM'd a lot. Um, and that's, I, I credit your persistence. And getting me getting me here was a big deal. I keep I kept saying, let's try next week. Let's do next week. But happy yeah, that's, finally. That's how I met his wife. <laughs> yeah, that, that is how I met my wife. <laughs> Thank God for the internet. DM uh, game pers- is strong. I, <laughs> nothing if not persistent. Thank you yeah. guys for taking time out of your busy Monday night in the Atlanta area. It's finally not raining for the first time in what feels like two weeks. Mm. I don't know what I don't want to jinx it, but if you guys it's are very- watching us on YouTube. Make sure that you guys hit the subscribe button, the notification bell icon. Make sure that you guys watch us every Monday night live at 8 p.m. Join what we call the trap, the live chat. Um, if you guys are listening to us on iTunes, podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all that good stuff, leave us a rating and or a review. We will read it live on the show. Housekeeping's out of the way. What a difference a week makes. <laughs> what, a, what a difference playing a team with a winning record makes. 
<laughs> some may argue that, yeah, that that's, that's very true i mean we're coming off of we're coming off a very eventful like past week i mean we had the we had the build up obviously coming off of a win against nashville going into a midweek fixture against miami that ultimately didn't happen and and for for good reason and then coming into saturday it's kind of hard to know what to expect it's like you had all that build up you know all that build up you had a lineup and you like we, I mean, the team sheet was announced. Everybody came out, and then kind of uh, just kind of got swept under up from underneath us again. Yeah. For good I mean, reason. not for Dan. But, he bought the Miami jersey. I see. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but then going into Saturday, we we were so pumped up. I felt like going into that game on Wednesday. I, mm-hmm. I it's it's I don't I'm I'm struggling. Um, and I'll, I'll kick it to you first, Felipe, but I'm like, I'm struggling right now because we've talked about this the past couple of weeks, not knowing what to expect from this team in terms of like, is, is this the coaching direction from the front office that we should be expecting moving forward? Like what happens if, you know, a manager comes in that's different than Steven Glass and the way that he's playing, is he going to be forced to play a certain way? Like, how does that fit in? Like, is this ultimately a tryout for a lot of the players? How much stock is there in the, in the rest of the season? I, I really just, I don't know how you are. Are you entertained? Is this exciting soccer for you? You know, all the typical questions <laughs> that the fan base is asking right now. You know what? And they're all like extremely valid points. I think if I were to take your question and, try and break it up, I could answer each one. But I think in general, yeah, it, this is a strange year. It was already a weird year, and it got even stranger for Atlanta United when they let go of Frank DeBoer. I mean, it, clearly it wasn't working under Frank, uh, despite the fact that he had won a couple. Uh, you know, he won the trophies, um, but I think we know now. We not now we know the story. We know why it didn't work. We knew. We know what was going on in the locker room, and the reason I bring that up is because I think that has. It's, it's still there. It's still kind of like lingering, that transition from Frank to Steven Glass. The, tactically, what is Glass trying to do? Tactically, is what Frank was doing for the last 19 to 20 months still kind of stuck and embedded in these players. They can't just hit the switch, the, you know, the on-off button and be like, all right, now we're playing for Steven Glass. Like, it, it wasn't that easy even under when, when Frank replaced Tata Martino. So... You know, I, I think going into Wednesday night, I agree. I think both teams, Atlanta and Inter Miami, were excited for that game. It was it was kind of a big game for both clubs. The first meeting between the two teams, um, plenty of storylines there. Uh, you know, two clubs that I think want to eventually be two of the biggest clubs in North America, uh, but two clubs that are clearly struggling at the moment. And then you had the you know Leandro Gonzalez Perez storyline. Breck Shea, um, Mikey Ambrose, like several former Atlanta United players that were probably getting ready to play, for, you know, against their former club. So I think it was set up for a big match. It gets postponed. There's a walkout. We know what happened there. Um, but don't forget, Orlando played their match. They played. They played against mm-hmm. Nashville. So they come into Saturday. And I think, you know, I asked Stephen Glass this afternoon. I even asked Brad Guzan before the match against Orlando about, you know, just how do you prepare for these games when you're missing matches, you don't have the time to, to train like you thought you would. And I think, you know, I, I, I get it. They don't want any excuses. They don't want to say that it's hard when you have a game that gets canceled and you don't have enough time to train. You have a new coach. 
But clearly, I think that was part of that performance on Saturday. Orlando came in. They just played a match. They were able to rest players. They rested their DP. They rested two of their DPs. Um, and they were very well coached. And Atlanta looked like they slept walk for 45 minutes. Um, and it looks like clearly they're still getting used to their new manager. So I, that is, to your point, I think that will continue for the time being. Um, when they play Miami on Wednesday night, again, who has the momentum? I, I would give the edge a little bit to Inter-Miami. They just lost to Nashville, but they're even though they're one in six or something like that, like you can see that they, there is an idea there. There is a tactical idea. Atlanta's still trying to figure out what they want to do this year. I guess that's the frustrating thing for me is that I feel like it's just constantly like, Oh, it's because of this. It's because of that. And it it just seems like grasping at straws like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, we didn't play a game. Well, it could have easily been, well, you played a game and then it's, well, we didn't have enough rest. You know, it's, any way you cut it, it just seems like grasping at straws to try to make sense of things rather than players sort of taking some ownership. And I think that's a little bit frustrating. It's just like you can't rest on the manager not being there anymore. And it's like, okay, you want to talk about the the interim coach being the issue. Well, that's when the players need to take that initiative and ownership to be the leaders essentially, even though they do have this interim coach. Yeah, I don't think Stephen Glass – can be blamed, you know, like he was, not at all. He was put into this position a very exactly. Position. I think the one thing that you can perhaps, if we're going to point fingers at Stephen Glass, is hey, and we asked him to this afternoon, like why wasn't the team ready for that first half? Like it was a rivalry match. I know it's different optics, no fans, strange, you know, COVID era that we're living in. Uh, but still, it was like it was Orlando. You're you're at home, I guess. Um, and they weren't ready to play. And so I think Stephen Glass spoke to that. You know, he, he kind of s- sent the message that they should be ready. They should, be, they should have been ready to play. They, they, they woke up in the second half. But, you know, I agree with you, Kevin. You know, I think that accountability does have to go across the organization. That includes the players. Um, we can start from the very top. The decisions that were made over a year ago, those decisions to hire Frank DeBoer, to kind of flip everything, that was working here at the club, flip it on its head and and then hope for this long-term vision of total football and uh, football evolution and the, the methodical possession and the pipeline that Ajax did. We're going to bring that over here. It just, now those decisions which clearly did not work are trickling down and affecting everyone involved from the interim manager to the players that are on the field, the new players coming in that are like, whoa, what did I walk myself into? And so I think there has to be a point where, and, and it starts with every game. I think with Atlanta United, before you knew what you are going to get, you had Joseph, you don't have Joseph now. And so like you have all these different players, they're younger. And let's be honest, like I, I think this is the, the part that Atlanta United fans like don't want to hear. They're not as talented, okay? It's not a bad team though. Like there's still no, not at all. tons of talent. But yeah. overall, when you look at, the 2018 team that won the cup, MLS Cup, the 2019 team that almost went to a second consecutive MLS Cup, compared to what the current roster is, clearly some big-time players have left, big-time players that were like mentally super important in that locker room. 
tactically they were brought in here to play a certain way and now they're gone. So now you're asking all these different players to kind of assume that responsibility and it's just not going to happen overnight. It's just, it's not going to happen. No. Yeah. It's an interesting point with what you said about the, the effects of swapping coaches is still sort of lingering in the locker room. You know, it's like when you're at work and mm-hmm. they change a process and then you're like, you're still saving things in the wrong place because you're not used to the process yet. So I, I think that kind of that resonates with me quite a lot. Um, plus with, you know, all the other issues we've been dealing with in 2020. I mean, murder hornets, are they still out there? Um, I think uh, the, the pandemic. Yeah. It's and I, I look at, you know, Manuel Castro. He before he came in, he was it took him a while to get his visa after everything was arranged. Mm -hmm. And so he was training by himself. And then he came in, played like 15 minutes against Club America in the Azteca. And then we went on hiatus for a while. Um, Thankfully, well, maybe for his benefit, they extended his loan. But I wonder if he just seems like a more of a poster child of what a mess this year has been. Like how on earth can he be successful in this situation? It's and a- then you you put, push it out to all the other players who may have more experience within the team, but still after the upheaval from last year, just sort of flowing on through into this year, it's, it's, it does, to me, it seems like this, this season is basically a wash from here. That is, those are all great points. Let me start with Manuel Castro because I think he's important, an important player to focus on for all those things that you just said and others. First of all, he had not been training. So when did he arrive? Um, before pandemic. So let's say it was like February, I believe. February, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. A month prior to that in Argentina with, with Estudiantes de la Plata, he wasn't training then either. Right. Because the club had told him, you're moving. We're set, we're going to send you on loan to Atlanta United. You're not playing in any more games. You're not scrimmaging. So they're, they're protecting that investment. And he told me when I talked to him for that, for that feature a couple months ago, you know, that's tough for any player, even if they know sure. that they're moving and it could be a great opportunity, they want to play. They want to be involved. And so he was not involved. He gets here. Like you said, he plays in a couple minutes or you know 15 20 minutes against club america but that's where you realize that you know frank de boer didn't recruit him frank de boer didn't scout him you know i right. think that's an example of a, a scouting department coming in coming to the coach and saying hey we have this player we have an opportunity to bring this player on from argentina he has similar attributes to I guess Tito Villalba, that was with the front office and even Frank DeBoer compared Manuel Castro to. But I think even in speaking to Frank DeBoer a couple of weeks ago for, for the exclusive that I did, you know, he basically told me like, I was trying to figure out where he could play. Like what was his best position? I started him in Orlando as a number nine. Um, and and Matt Castro is not a striker. He's not a number nine. I think he's in a, a front three attacker, but clearly he's a little bit more comfortable close to the touchline or just in a hybrid role, I think. So he did, he didn't seem, he still doesn't seem like a great fit for this team. doesn't mean he's not a good player. doesn't mean he can't sure. be a good player, but I think to your point, what you mentioned, it's like these decisions are now, now the player, he's still stuck here. The manager's gone. A new manager's in where, where will Steven glass put him, you know, glass put him on, you know, he started him out wide on the right flank against Orlando 
he looked a little bit more comfortable, but still isn't finishing his chances. So it's a tough spot for those players, for those players. I think you can argue that for half of the lineup though. For a lot of it. It's like, I mean, one of our major DPs looks that way half the time, you know, it's, it's frustrating to see that from an organization that, you know, while yes, the manager has rotated out over the past few seasons, like you would hope to see a little bit more out of the front office with the signings and the players taking the reins to say who and how this, this formation and this attacking exciting football that they all want to play is going to take shape. And I just, I'm I'm not, I'm struggling to see how that's going to take shape at all this year at this point. Yeah. PT Martinez, again, just, he's just never been settled, you know? And I think, and and I, and I think he against Matago when he had that, you know, those was it two goals against Matago here at, at Kennesaw, you know, in the, in when he was talking to reporters in the mix zone and he basically admitted that he was not in a good place mentally when he first got to Atlanta, which was great. It was very eye-opening. It's great to see a guy like be honest with everybody. And he was like motivated. Now you're going to see the, the right PT. Then the four month stoppage happens with COVID. Um, and, and now the, the coach is gone and, and you still, you're wondering if this, if PT Martinez can end up being the DP that everyone expected him to be, but these situations aren't helping him to your point. No, not at all. You can't expect him to just, you know, carry the team uh, you know, I think what I'm getting from Stephen Glass is that he has this like trifecta of challenges. Like, how do you motivate a team that clearly just went through something not traumatic, but like pretty dr- dramatic from Orlando? Yeah. Not lose, not winning a game, not scoring a goal. Uh, clearly, the situation got toxic with with DeBoer. Then DeBoer gets let go, um, and so he has to motivate them to believe in themselves again. But he doesn't have. He is on Joseph. He doesn't have all these core players that he thought he would. Um, at the same time, he's trying to figure out what shape works. Like, what what shape can I book this team in where we're competitive, we're playing exciting soccer, we're attacking? So, yeah, it's perhaps tough to call the year a wash, but it's going to be that type, type of year where every game is like, is this the game where they're going to be, where they're going to play a complete game? Because Nashville wasn't a great performance. Stephen Glass told him this 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 afternoon. He was like, "It wasn't like we played great against Nashville. Um, I think they just got yeah. win that they needed." Yeah, yeah. And who's going to be that person for Atlanta? Right? Like we all know Joseph's out, but there's still veteran players on this team. And it looked like with Frank's exiting that Brad Guzan was going to take that role, and he was the one really sort of speaking up on the players' behalf and was really sort of on the positive outlook for players taking control and and Mm -hmm. him sort of cementing himself as that leadership individual. And I I don't know that necessarily that's the case anymore. Again, it's just this sort of shifting and rearranging at, at any sort of site of adversity that you need to have somebody that's going to be that bedrock regardless of win, lose or draw, you know? That's like our only chance to get back to some level of homeostasis under a a caretaker, right? Is you have to have a couple guys step up that are really going to take the mantle. And like, they're going to be the ones that even out the locker room that get players on the same page that break the muscle memory as Felipe is talking about of playing under Frank DeBoer and getting them out of that, that mentality. I I think, I mean, if, if not the caretaker manager, right. It's not, again, it's, I don't think, we said before, uh, you know, we're not really expecting him to be 
a world beater of a manager. Like we're not expecting him to be the guy who controls and pulls all the strings and everything and steps up for these players. But I mean, if, if not for a couple veteran leaders on this team, then, then who at this point, because Steve right. Glass has really been brought into, he's been asked to do a job while they, they search for a permanent manager. It really is incumbent on those, those more veteran players, Brad Guzan, or uh, I mean, watch somebody like uh, Eric Rometty step up against Nashville, but then see the inconsistencies on Saturday of what, yeah. what happens. With and that, and they've that. got to take ownership of that inconsistency. Like that's the thing about Joseph as that leader for the team is him not only being disappointed in his own performances whenever he's not living up to his own expectations or the expectations of the the fans on his performance, but also on his teammates, you know, and, and keeping them in line and then taking that responsibility. Like you can't just have all the gratitude and accolades whenever it's going well and complain about everything that's out of your control whenever it's bad. But then whenever you're responsible for that and your teammates are too, to just shrug that off and, and not uh, take ownership of that as well. And that's what we need right now more than ever. I think it's also, we don't have, like you were saying earlier, we don't have those leaders in the outfield. I mean, Guzan's great. It was great hearing him playing against Nashville where he was directing all the players and he was like, George Brock like cross and Bella blocked the cross. And he was directing the guys and you could hear that. Um, but then you would think, well, Lorenowitz would be the guy who could be that leadership out further in the field, but he's not He's not there. He can't go 90 minutes or maybe even 45 at this point. So I was really – so you're kind of looking for someone in that final third who can kind of be one to sort of gather up the team and try and motivate them on the field because you're not going to be able to get that from Guzan. No, maybe maybe he'll be damned with his TikTok presence, you know? He's got that <laughs> – Ted Lasso positive reinforcement thing German, going on. They should let Jurgen Dam play with his cell phone on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely should. That's a yeah. really good point. <laughs> no, I agree. I think Brad Guzan, like to, to Kevin, your point, it is going to be Brad Guzan. He was the captain last season. He's still the captain. Uh, Jeff Florinowitz is another captain. And Frank DeBoer told me, which I thought was interesting, that PT Martinez had elevated himself to like a third co-captain. So, uh, but. I agree. Like Brad Guzan, who's been very vocal, he was very vocal after that last loss to Columbus um, in the MLS back tournament. He was like the guy that was like, we need to change. Like we need something like just calling everybody out. Um, But yeah, it can't just be him. And it's not like, oh, because he's a goalkeeper. But yeah, I think this is a team that wants to be an attacking team. So it's natural for like a 10 or a nine to be that guy. That's like, that has that attitude. And this is just more proof that Joseph Martinez is irreplaceable. You know, like even Frank DeWard told me in that, that one-on-one that I had last week was that, you know, the importance of, of Joseph Martinez. Yes. He should not walk out of practice basically is what Frank DeWard told me that he should not do that because that's not the example that he, he should set for the rest of the team. But, do you think that was the straw that broke the camel's back? Like, do you think that it was seeing that leader walk out of practice that sort of instigated the rest of the locker room kind of taking up arms against Frank DeBoer? I think that was, I don't think that was the, the, the straw. Um, it was a big deal. Though. I mean, when you have your, 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 your D, two DPs, PT and Joseph Martinez visibly frustrated with the manager and leaving practices, 
Um, that's not good for any locker room. doesn't matter how much you're winning. doesn't matter how, how good you are. Uh, but, but Joseph, you know, even his faults, I guess, if you can call that a fault where you get, he gets so frustrated with his teammates that he doesn't want to practice still, you know, I've heard from players like Justin Merrim that was on the team last year. He told me, man, like Joseph, like, will just like get everyone focused, even if it's like, because he's yelling at you. And even if his expectations are too high and you in the moment in a game, you're like, dude, chill out. You understand like why he's doing it. Frank told me the same thing. Like he even gets the coaches ready with that attitude. So they don't have that right now. They're not going to get that from anyone. Even if PT Martinez wants to be that guy, I feel like similar to Joseph, he has to be playing well in order for exactly that guy. If he's not, then his his body language, his attitude is not going to be the one that's like firing everybody up. So yeah, that's that's a big miss right now. It's a big hole. Yeah, I want to go to the uh, the trap real quick. Some you know we we haven't pointed out much uh, in there tonight. We got got a couple new faces, Felipe. You're bringing them to us, uh, Gustavo well, Rodriguez from Buenos Aires. I retweeted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gustavo was able to join us uh, live finally. We got Adam Mulligan, uh, Brittany S, Bill Holcomb, Ron, our buddy Ron Pena, and Percy Herrera fighting in the trap. Uh, it's no different than what they do on yeah. Twitter all day, every day. Uh, Steven Perales and Michelle and Edgar Ochoa. So some people are talking about um, kind of that veteran leadership, that that vacuum. And, and Bill Holcomb brings up, he said, uh, you know, how much of that stepping up is filling in Parkhurst's mm-hmm. shoes? He said, I feel like we missed that a lot. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's kind of a big yeah. one. Um, I mean, he was like... I felt like he was definitely the calming presence, at least to instill confidence in his partnership in the in the back line, but also was was instrumental in helping direct the team or keep them uh, to keep that keep them in line uh, during the game. I don't know. It is a pretty big vacuum, like a, a big hole to fill. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about Miles Robinson coming off uh, arguably the best season for a center back last year in MLS, even though he didn't win the, the award. Um, and then coming into this year, start, stop, start, stop, injured, not injured, you know, finally coming into uh, full health. But I don't really know that I've seen that from him um, on the field yet. Yeah. I, th- I mean, listen, Miles Robinson is a very good player, very good defender. He's only getting it better. Uh, but I think I'm one of those guys that's always I'm not a pump. that I was I was like a pump that breaks on Miles Robinson guy like last season. Now I'm like, OK. Now, now elevate your game, elevate the game, elevate your distribution, be more, even more consistent. Don't just be the lockdown one V one defender. Cause in modern football, that's uh, center back has to be much more than that. And I think he's going to get there. I think he's proven to be one of the top defenders in the league, but yeah, he doesn't have, he's young. He's not Michael Parkhurst as far as experience goes. Michael Parker, I agree. I think his retirement did set, the, the team back a little bit as far as leadership and just like game presence. Uh, he was a very cerebral defender. So like in, in a very high octane kind of wild way of playing that Atlanta sometimes st- like thrives under, it was good to have a guy like Michael Parker's that could settle everybody down. that could read the game that could correct people's mistakes. Uh, and in that interview with Frank DeBoer, he, he brought, he brought up Michael Parker's in the same sentence as Darlington Nagby and Julian Gressel. So clearly Parker's retirement, which I understand it. This is my own personal opinion. I mean, I think that 
he could still play. I, I just believe that he could still play. Start every game? No. But the fact that Miles was coming up, that they they knew that they were going to replace LGP with a similar type of player. You know, Michael Parkers wasn't going to get a, a lot of time, but I don't know why I felt like the retirement was kind of just like abrupt. Um, <laughs> and I think he could still play a role on a team that, considering the roster turnover that the front office was clearly getting ready for, I feel like a player like Michael Parkers could have hung around and helped in this transition. Um, Do we bring him back? <laughs> we need you. Can you get hey Michael? Can you dress? No, <laughs> no. I mean it's 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 too late. I and mean, but again that that it's part of the history though. I think his retirement yeah. and and when it happened will be part of this club's history because uh, it, it hasn't worked out. It was supposed to be kind of like sending him off on a high, if you will. Uh, and we're replacing him. We have Miles Robinson. We have all these other players, and they're clearly struggling uh, with that leadership part. And, I, and honestly, with I think Michael Parker's was so underrated as a ball playing center back. I mean, he was just that good, and so that's tough to replace as well. Yeah, I mean, he had the tactical acumen. I think that was yeah. the biggest thing, especially in his. Adva- I say it's like he's a like a, a dog at the vet. Like in his advanced age, like his <laughs> tactical acumen definitely helped cover up some of those deficiencies, at least from an athletic standpoint. But you're right. I mean, I was always pleasantly surprised, especially even whenever we deployed him at right back, like in emergency situations. I felt like his ability to play a ball would always strike me as like surprising. But I don't remember yeah. him ever like putting a foot wrong or like putting yeah. bad passes into uh, uh, up to the, uh, to the attack in third. He was, he was a daring passer, which is so important for Atlanta United. You have to be a daring risk taking distributor of the ball, even from your center back position. If you just play it safe, this, that's what's, I think that's where this team is right now. They're, yeah. they're very safe. They, they, they don't, they don't take a lot of risks like they used to. And and that's that's what we refer to as like that lingering effect of DeBoer, who DeBoer didn't want to take a lot of risk. At one point, he even told us he didn't want Miles Robinson sending diagonal balls. And it was like DeBoer's bread and butter as a player was that ball. And he even told us like, even though I did that as a player, I don't want my center backs to do that. He wants them to find, you know, find the number six, find the eight and let them play. Uh, but that was a big shift from the way that those center backs were playing under Tata Martino. And just to stick with Michael, Michael Parkers, I thought he was one of the best passers in the game. And if you, you could move him around to left back, center back, right back, and he was still look, looking to break lines. He wasn't just looking to kind of like give it up and then get back in position. So, and that's no, we saw that out of both him and LGP, right? Yeah, like, LGP as well. I mean, LGP did that last night in the game against Nashville. I was watching it. And it's, I mean, same old LGP is like pinging balls across the field. He's taking risks when he has to. Uh, he was the player when they were down one nil, like, you know, 10, 15 minutes to go. He was one of those players that was like, all right, I'm taking the ball and I'm, you know, I'm going to make something happen. Uh, when it was nil nil, he was the guy yelling at his players on corner kicks and tackling guys and getting stuck in. LGP was the guy pregame in the huddle, yelling at everyone, getting him motivated. So, I know Fernando Mesa is like supposed to be that player. And I think Fernando Mesa is a very good defender and he will grow eventually into that type of player, but he, you just don't replace that attitude. You don't replace that energy that LGP brought 
And to your point, Kevin, the way that he was able to, to play out of the back. No, it's a yeah. good point. Like, I think one of the things that at least personally that I really enjoyed about the defensive playmaking under FDB was they seemed much more confident in possession and distribution, mm-hmm. at least amongst themselves on the back line. But just it's just now sort of coming to my realization that as good as Miles Robinson and Fernando Meza have been, neither one of those players are really moving up past midfield the way that we saw LGP and Michael Parkhurst doing on a consistent basis over years past, you know, so much so that Michael Parkhurst ends up leading to the assist in MLS cup. You know, it's something that I can't imagine Miles Robinson. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I can't imagine Miles Robinson or Fernando Meza in that position, the way that back line is currently structured. And I think that there's got to be some discussion about how you get some of that back without giving up some of the tactical consistency on the back line that we've seen. And I think that was really what was frustrating to me out of that Orlando match was it seemed like our defensive playmaking, regardless, I mean, so much so so this season has been who's going to be scoring the goals, right? Like what's happening on offense? And I think that those questions still remain. But one of the things that was at least relatively consistent was our play defensively with a few hiccups here or there. And this past weekend against Orlando, that just seemed completely thrown out uh, altogether. Yeah, it wasn't good performance at all from anyone. I mean, they they had a good second half. And what I told – uh, what I asked Stephen Glass this this afternoon, it's like, you know, I remember Brad Guzan getting really upset after that color, that Columbus match in Orlando because he was asked about a good second half. And he's like, we're not that type of team. We cannot live off of one good half. It's not good enough, da-da-da. And there seemed to be this, like, focus from some of the players, even like Brooks Lennon brought it up, and even Stephen Glass post game after Orlando that, like, it got a lot better in the second half. But is that is that Atlanta United? Now, right. where it's like we have one good half and we that's what we build off of. Um, it, it's not good enough. The expectations remain, I mean, just because of the brand. But clearly, there there's a lot of work to do. And, and all those things that we just discussed tactically and the way the players were just kind of playing freely in the last, in the last few years. And, you know, they had really good performances at times under Frank DeBoer. But I think there was always that, like, that tug of war between the players and, and the manager. Uh, and, and now the team is like stuck in limbo and wanting to improve, but the direction right now is it's either temporary um, and there's no plan yet that we know of. I mean, I, I know that the club is talking to managers. Um, I don't know when that decision is going to come about. Like, I think we just look at the present state of the world. What, would you bring in a manager right now? Like it, it would not, I don't think it helps. Um, <laughs> And we don't know what 2021 is going to look like for anything regarding sports or MLS. So, Or the lineup, right? Like I'd rather a manager come in and actually know what the lineup is going to be rather than come in for eight or nine games this season and ultimately be a wash and start to instill something that's not even viable next season. Yeah. Not to mention the return of Joseph Martinez, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so we've got that. You know, it's it's going to be a good thing when we bring in a new manager, but it's also going to be another change, you know, another, you know, at least it will be further removed from FDB. But then you're gonna, you've still got to deal with this other change. I Thank think God help him if he loses more than two games in a row with this fan base the way it is. Well, I want to 
move to more positive because I feel like we've just been circling the shame drain right now. <laughs> At least, our, at least our wings are pretty good and pretty exciting. George, uh, George Barrett. Well, George Barrett has been great. I will absolutely admit. Yeah. But I feel like Brooks Lennon has been the most consistent player that we've had at the throughout this season so far. Yeah. I mean, and he's. It looks like he's the one who's going to try and score the goals. Like he I had, he had like three <laughs> shots uh, this yeah, weekend. They're like all headers too. Yeah. Uh, so okay. It, Go ahead, please. Oh, no. Well, I just – so I feel like um, Beto on the left, he's been playing really good. He's mm-hmm. I've been really impressed with his play, just bombing up the wing, and then being able to track back. In fact, even um, on Saturday, he was able to track back some, but then when you're when, – when all of the center defensive midfield and center backs are not going to help you out, there's little that you can do there. And then on the right wing, we're going to have Escobar back. He played – great against um nashville um brooks and has obviously been playing great and i feel like there's at least some bright spots there that we can look to build on and stephen glass can look to build on um so yeah. um i think there have been bright spots like yeah. we don't have to like to your point the shame train like not to like jump back on it, but I will start with the fact that the previous manager, which I thought like I remember when he told me when Frank told me on that call that I had with him last week, he was like, we didn't have any wingers. Right. We had no wingers. And he brought up Jake Mulraney. He's like, maybe Jake Mulraney can become that. Uh, So I thought that was interesting to hear from a a manager who wanted to implement a system, a three, four, three system that is heavily dependent on wingers um, that can track back. And it's just a very disciplined and it's both fluid and very disciplined system. And, Clearly, it's difficult. It's a very difficult system to master. Um, but yeah, I think the bright spots from from Orlando, even from Nashville, I thought there were some things that PT and George Bella did very well. Like clearly, that communication is something that has been working. Like anytime PT would kind of drop centrally and receive the ball, it was almost automatic that George Bella was gone, mm-hmm. and he would be free, and they would find him. Uh, so, so that was that was positive, and, and that happened quite a few times against Nashville until Nashville figured it out and kind of adjusted. Now, Orlando clearly did their homework, and they just nullified that part of PT's game. But George Bello, I thought, was pretty consistent. He still got up and down the wing. His service was pretty good. He should have had an assist. I mean, yeah. uh, he sent a ball into Adam John. That he was just too late for it, but a great move. Now – what I feel about the wingers, I don't necessarily agree with Frank DeBoer. I do think that wing play is like it could still be better. Brooks Lennon, to his credit, has worked his his ass off. Like he, right, absolutely, worker. He's extremely hungry. Uh, against Orlando, to your point, like he sh- could have scored a couple goals, and he finally got his first goal um, from that from that service from Jurgen Dom. But it's not a dynamic. They're not dynamic wingers. They're very, to me, they're kind of like system dependent. Straight ahead, yeah. Yeah, it's like they're they're going to bomb forward. The, the formation pushes those for, those wingers up high, and so they're they're going to be in position to make plays, and then they have to make them. Can Brooks Lennon in a tight space beat his guy and make plays? That's not why he was brought in here. You could argue, well, Julian Gressel didn't do that either, but. 
Julian Gressel just felt like I had he, he had a better understanding of the way the team was playing and he could get himself in certain spots. But I still think that is a work in progress. It's one of the bright spots, though, to your mm-hmm. point. I think they they're they're consistently upfield um, and they're getting in good positions to create chances. But are they one v one wingers? No, I mean they're like George Bellow can become that, but you said it yourself. He does have a responsibility of getting back and tracking back. So. I think that's still something to, to look at. When you talk about being intense and being on the front foot, you need those types of players like a Jake Mulraney to be consistently going at his guy. And I still see they're a little tentative sometimes. So that's something to look forward to. I think they can I think that's an easy fix. You're just telling them you're you you're one v one, beat your man. Just do it. Like we yeah. Well, it's also going to benefit whenever they've got Joseph back as well. I mean, so much of Gressel's success was dependent on the fact that he had Joseph to distribute to. And that compounded by the success that these wings are already starting to find without him is only going to get more so whenever he comes back. So, Yeah, and Joseph, like, again, teams teams are game plan for Joseph. The center backs don't sleep the night before the game because they're like, Who's going to track Joseph? You know, don't forget about Joseph. Don't let him, don't let Joseph get by you. So that, that shifts defenses. Exactly. And then a guy like Julian Gressel suddenly has tons of space, looks up and he can provide service right now. There's still an opponent is not game planning for Adam John. And that's not a slight to Adam John. They just know that he's a post up kind of, you know, target striker. Yeah. He's a warm body. Yeah, a lot easy. It's a lot easier to prepare for that. You can keep your shape. You don't have to take many risks. Uh, and so then all the focus is on those wings, and they're just serving balls into two, three center backs. They're just waiting for that cross. So that's another thing that I, I, I'm still seeing from Atlanta United. Like the attack is a little bit better, uh, but there's it's still a lot of kind of hopeful balls into the box. Yeah, yeah. I think um, one of the more surprising things to the Brooks Lennon uh, point about his play so far in the restart, the second restart, yeah, the second restart, yeah, um, is that how many shots on goal he's had from headers. He's not a big guy. No, like right. it's. I, I feel like he's had at least. So he had two. He should have had two header uh, header goals on Saturday. The one that just. You know, octopus kept it out by what, like probably an inch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was very. Uh, I mean, if that goes in too, like how different is that it's game? Match, like, yeah. yeah, it's a completely different match. But he, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, I think it's a little disheartening, but also heartening the fact that he's on the the end of so many headers. It means <laughs> that we're getting good service into the box. But at the same time, if you have a six foot four guy in there, that's not the guy that's getting on the yeah. on the end of that. Yeah, I mean. Him and Miles Robinson or Anton. I was gonna Walsh. say, but I mean, didn't we have Kenwin Jones in the lineup a couple of years ago? What's yeah, that? That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's very- against, I, watching, I rewatched the Nashville game, and and this was before the Orlando loss, but I was watching it, and I'm like, okay, there are a couple times when Atlanta United got broke through, and they're in the opponent's half, and it's it's probably on Bell. It's, it's like Bello and PT kind of combining. And I looked at the runners and there were like five Atlanta players in the box in the first half, like looking for that final ball. The final ball wasn't always there, but the intention of getting forward, I thought they did that well against Nashville against Orlando, not so much. And it wasn't just because Atlanta did play well. I mean, Orlando just stifled 
the midfield. <laughs> it was just like that mm-hmm. was their game plan. They rested, you know, Mauricio Pereira, their DP number 10. They rested Nani and they he and Oscar Pereira just like, okay, we're gonna be compact. I have two essentially number sixes that are just going to shadow the hell out of Eric Rometty and Mo Adams. And eventually Atlanta United just got super predictable. And we go back to the back line. Uh, you know, I tweeted this after the game, like Miles Robinson had 89 touches in that game. Uh, the defenders were the players that had the most touches for Atlanta United. Uh, there are two central midfielders. I think Mo Adams had 21 touches, Eric Rometty like 46. So that is, if, if, if I am an Atlanta United fan, I think the concern is that opponents know how to beat Atlanta United. <laughs> that, yeah. okay, that, yeah. that, it's like you can look at those numbers and, and say, okay, the coach clearly saw if we nullify their two you know, central midfielders, they're going to have to attack down the wings and then we, t- we take our chances. So that is a concern because they're, Atlanta United looks a little bit too easy to, to game plan against. Stephen Glass brought it up after the match. We were too easy to play through. Um, in that first half. So still, again, this is like the, the point of this episode tonight is like, there's just so much work to be done. And it's like, who who is really accountable for it? But um, every game is kind of like a toss up. Are they, how are they going to play? You know, Stephen Glass said, which I thought was true. He's like, a benefit that we have is that we're a new staff. Like some of our lineups are going mm-hmm. to be a surprise for the opponent, which I think is an excellent point. Um, but after one game, I think an opponent can see, okay, we know how these, how these guys want to play because we don't have to worry about Joseph. They're still figuring out who's going to score their goals. Um, and PT Martinez clearly is a danger player. So if you can just body him a little bit and force other players to make plays, uh, you might have a good chance, but we go back to Brooks Lennon. Yeah. A big bright spot against Orlando, a, a hustle type of player, um, you know, is he the guy though? Like he's supposed to come in and replace the all-time assist leader at Atlanta United. This is not the best year to do that, but I think still, just like everyone else, the jury is kind of still out on that on that that signing. Yeah, somebody's asking in the uh, in the traps, like what happens? What is the what does the lineup look like when everybody gets healthy? Like Dan, is Jurgen Dam? Is he the guy to to replace? I guess to replace Julian Gressel on that right wing. Uh, well, I would put Dam, he would be my right winger. You know, if, if he's going to be a consistent starter, that's, that's where I'd want to play him. So I'd be playing him higher up the field than Gressel, mm-hmm. I feel like. Yeah. Um, I don't think we can like really, we're never replacing like for like players. I feel like you can kind of no, loosely no. draw a circle around him, but I want Dam higher up the field. I don't want him as much defensive responsibility because I'd want, you know, other players to be taken on deeper in the field. Um, Especially whenever you've got Escobar behind him, you don't need it as right. much. So, But I want to save his speed for like running at defenders. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I thought even when Frank DeBoer before the Orlando tournament, um, before COVID, when I had no inkling that Frank DeBoer would be let go, I thought I was starting to figure out what both Frank and the front office wanted from the team. And and something that I was had landed on was just overall team speed. I thought I think that's something that they want to increase. I think across every position, ideally Atlanta would love to have faster players because this mm-hmm. you know, both in CONCACAF Champions League and MLS, it's like it's just it can be some games can be track meets. 
that's not every game in MLS though. I think there are teams that you can see that are that want to be methodical, want to build play, want to possess. But I felt like the profile of the player was how do we just increase our team speed? It, it just wasn't. I don't think they're there yet, clearly. But you're you're starting to see some players like I think Jurgen Dom is like the type of guy. I agree. I would play him higher up the pitch, and his only job is to go one v one and provide service. Right. Uh, you don't want him as a wing back. You know that was what Justin Merrim struggled with so often that he is a one v one player, and Frank had him as a wing back where. 50% of your responsibility is defending. Uh, and, and so I think that there are some pieces there that you can allow creative players to just play freely and be and create. And the, I think that's the goal for Atlanta United. I, I think it's just right now, these players are coming in. They're not fit like Kubo and, and Jurgen Dam are just coming in. I think Stephen Glass has been, has been very blunt about the fact that they're not match fit yet. Um, but if they're going to have to be, you know, really soon. I think they need that type of spark. They need that type of player that even a right back or a left back is like, okay, I need to, I need to be careful. I need to like watch this guy because he's going to go at me one v one. And right now, there just aren't enough players on the field doing that. So, fitness. We've been talking about fitness. I feel like ever since Pity arrived. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the reason why players have come and not fit is it is it a mentality that they're not ready for or just not as interested in as you know you have players like miguel almiron who their whole life is just prepping to play soccer it seems like do you think it's just a different mentality that these other guys bring or is it just a different way they approach the game let's let's start with miguel almiron because he was a different species of player he was always working hard he would try to fight through injuries i've told this story before when i showed up uh at the training ground when in 2018 pouring rain cold i think it was november or october just like a shitty day in atlanta um and we we waited in like this like lobby area and we look outside and there's no there's no one on the field except miguel almiron and, and a trainer and he was working through uh, I think a hamstring injury or something, but he was like working his ass off in the rain, in the cold rain, just like working, 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 trying to get fit. And I remember thinking back then, I was like, wow, like that, that's the type of player that any teammate would, would need. Like you see a guy, your right. player doing that. And I think that trickled down to that team. Like that's why they were so together and so united. Uh, you know, there's so many instances of COVID, COVID messed up a lot of fitness. Let's just be honest. Like, I go back to like Chicharito Hernandez at Orlando. Like, he was not fit, dude. Like, right. He didn't even pass the eye test. He did not look like a professional, first-rate soccer player. He looked like he had not played for a while. He kind of showed up and was forced to play because he was one of the star players. He got injured immediately after that. Um, you know, in Atlanta United's case, I don't think it's because of lack of interest. Like, there are the games where even in, in poor performances, the effort was 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 always there. You know, like they were always mm-hmm. at least trying to play. They just looked lost and and disjointed. So, uh, like the the players that have come from Mexico just have not been playing. And I think that's you know, still you, they're not like Kubo Torres and Jurgen Dom as as popular as they are in Mexico. And and they did have their moments. These are two players that were on the outside looking in at their previous club. So 
now they're coming in and they're having to get match fit. They're having to match the fitness of the players that are already here. And they're having to match the rhythm and the pace of play in MLS. And it's just not going to happen immediately. And so I think that is, we're going to see them. I think they're going to accelerate their fitness though and get them in because now it's a bit of a crisis as far as like just results go. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's because of lack of interest. I think sometimes it is confidence. Like the guys, right. down. like even professional yeah. players, like they looked down against Orlando, man. Like they looked, they didn't look like a good team mentally. And I think the, that you know, Eric Rometty told us today, the first goal just like hit him really hard. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's an issue with Atlanta United. That's that they've, they've carried over from the pre COVID and then all the way through Orlando is like, heads down frustration and it just would like everything would just like flip on its head. They're, they're still, they're not a team that when they get scored on, they're like, all right, we still got this. And that's what Steven Glass said today, because at the same time, they still have to believe that what this staff is telling them to do is the right thing to do. And they're having to deal with that when they're like losing a game or something. So it's just a tough ask all around. Yeah. Right? And I, I think that ties into a little bit of what's been going on in the trap. Ronald Pena mentions those players came into a club with a vision under a manager they would die for. Now Atlanta has no identity. And that also is maybe one of the frustrations that I've had and to call Jay Riddle out himself uh, and, and some of the other people that I had seen on Twitter is that like, I think one of the things that, that really scares me right now with the fan base and this front office and this organization is that, after the firing of Frank DeBoer, it seems like everything's on the table. And you hear people calling for Carlos Bocanegra's head now and Bocanegra out. And it's like, if you don't sort of stop the bleeding and try to build some consistency in this organization, you're not going to fix the problems of a lack of identity. And, and just throwing the baby out with the bathwater and slash and burn from top to bottom isn't going to fix any of that. And it's just it's just really really frustrating and disheartening to see as a fan of this team and the parts and pieces of it that are on there that i genuinely believe are capable of being successful i don't think that you know getting rid of Bocanegra and then Darren Eels and i mean and then people are going to be calling for Arthur Blank to sell before you know it. like it's it's just come on man like it's it's i i think we can all agree that it's strange times like pandemic or not, but for this organization with the turnover on the staff uh, as far as players go, but also the front office with management structure and tactics and everything else thrown into the mix, like people have got to calm down a little bit because it's, let me ask you something. First of all, I mean, there's pressure on Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra. There's pressure. There's pressure on them when they were winning. So right. the fact that, that things have not gone well and that some of the decisions that they've made are now clearly mistakes or just bad fits, perhaps in different circles or depending on who you talk to, that pressure has increased. But they're not going anywhere. I mean, Carlos right. and Darren Neal's are not going anywhere. Uh, I, I think they've built enough equity to, to, to not get a mulligan because I've been on different – pods where, where I agree with the fact that Atlanta United doesn't get mulligans. They don't just get to take a year off and ask the fans to forget about what happened in 2020. You know, now we're going to be back. Like they have to face this criticism and deal with it and make the right decisions. 
But I will ask you guys, like the fact that the fan base is, is kind of up in arms and perhaps, you know, the, the veil has been kind of raised over their eyes and they kind of see some of the truth behind decisions and all that, you know, whose fault is that? You know, like the front office themselves have come out from the very beginning and, and raised the stakes very high for this club, no matter what. You know, they're, they have to compete for, for titles. They have to complete for, compete for trophies. They have to be in the top echelon of any, anything that they participate in at all times. Um, now, I know that that's a lot of like just kind of like PR speak, uh, but it gets to the point where you've got to either live or die by those words. And I think right now you're seeing the fact that the front office has raised the expectations so high that now the fans are like, okay, well, now what? Like, you, I thought we were supposed to be good. You made the decision. You got rid of all these players. Where are we going from here? So my question to you guys, and I would love to hear it, is just like, what? whose fault is that? If the, if the fans are that upset, whose fault is it? Oh, I Tim, think, go first. Tim, go first. Right, Tim. Be quiet. You've been quiet for too long. We'll, we'll, work, we'll no. work around uh, clockwise. Tim, Dan, and yeah. then I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the I'm trying. I'm trying not to get exposed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's a combination of things, to be honest. I think you, in hindsight, is definitely a mistake by the front office to overhaul what Tata Martino had built. Um not just in, I mean, he got the results, obviously winning MLS cup and then, you know, walking out on top, but you have that again, going back to what we're talking about, the the FDB muscle memory of the players, you had players that were going into a system that the front office had to fully buy into. And Felipe, you, you talked about this at the beginning was like bringing Frank DeBoer in. You, you wanted to bring in the IX pipeline. You wanted to bring in the, the, um, the mentality of building from the youth and, and building this total football team, even though I don't know if we've seen it work in a, a team at, or in, in a league as financially restrictive as MLS Ooh. is. And oh. yeah. And then you, you, but you, there's so much it, to me, it's the front office because you have to, they're, they're smart enough and savvy enough, I think to know that if you're going for not just a change, like going from Tata Martino to, um, I mean, GBS would have still been a pretty big change, right? Because GBS is at least whenever he was coming in, uh, being touted more of a defensive manager, less, you know, less, um, open and, and creative than, than Tata Martino. But then you go even further than that and you bring in Frank DeBoer and you have to, ma- like, you have to go all in, right? I mean, if you're changing managers and, and all that, you have to go and say, this is our guy. We're going to buy into what he thinks because we believe in him. And because of that, we're going to have to change the way that we go about, but not, not just like our, our tactical focus, but going in and changing the way that we go about scouting players. Who knows? Like if that's to me, that's part of the problem too. We, we see, I think Brian, our, our buddy in the trap was saying, you know, you replaced, let me see if I can find the exact uh, comment real quick. Just talking about the replacements of uh, who was let go. And geez, uh, there's too much in here. Anybody, but replacing LGP and Nagby with, let's say, Heinemann and Anton Walks. I mean, those are not, those are not, you know, not good comparisons. LGP and Julian Gressel wanted to stay. They would have stayed to play for Frank DeBoer. It's not like they were like, 
it's either me or Frank. No, like they wanted to stay like, yeah, they wanted new deals and, and they, perhaps they wanted more money. And like, that's fine. Like in any job, high performers expect to, to, to be rewarded, but they wanted to stay here and they were willing to still work with Frank DeBoer. So again, I think it goes back to those front office decisions and, and, and why they made them. And when they made them, they really banked them. You know, they really supported the manager I think, and, and, and thinking behind Frank DeBoer and why he was hired and what he could potentially become, uh, it just didn't work out. Like I, There was a point when I felt like Frank DeBoer could eclipse anything that Tata Martino did results-wise in Atlanta. There was a moment where he could have done that. Would he be as engaged with the, with the fan base? I don't know. Maybe not. But winning cures anything. Uh, he was that close. It just didn't work out. And I think Clearly now we know why, but, uh, you know, I always, I bring that up when people kind of want to, want to, want to debate about the players that left and that they wanted to leave. No, there was a moment where they wanted to stay here. <laughs> they wanted to play for Frank DeBoer this season in 2020. And it just wasn't part of the plan. Yeah. It just, before I switch it over to, I, I'm so bad with the mirror to Dan, um, before I switch it over to Dan, just to, to close it out, I, I think it, in some ways, I think that the front office is taking ownership of of this, like of this mistake by cutting bait now. I don't think they cut bait with Frank DeBoer. And, and that's why they call, I think, you know, part of the reason why it's a mutual decision, what have you, I think is there is some blame that they're accepting there. And I think they're ready to move on to or on from it, because if they would have stuck with Frank DeBoer, things kept potentially getting more toxic. Um, you know, it's on the past now, but they could have been tied to that. They could have, you know, they're making an executive decision now that, that they need to move on. They need to get back to what they know, because obviously what Frank DeBoer, they brought him in to do and what they tied themselves to, they don't, they didn't know well enough. And I think it ultimately ended with them. Yeah. I think that it's, it's frustrating from a fan's perspective because you don't know all the options that they had when they had to make the decisions. So I have to put my faith in the front office and say, when they decided to hire Frank DeBoer, that was the best decision out of all the options that they had. You know, we don't know the landscape. Um, and when Frank came in, I was really happy. I was like, this could be amazing. Like, I love the Ajax uh, building the pipeline of the academy. He's a real tenured coach. He's had, I think he was, he had some value to him because of those past misses on his clubs, but there were extenuating circumstances for both Crystal Palace and Inter. So I was excited. I was really excited. And I feel like if it, if things had carried on from where they were in 2018, um, I think he'd still be here because he lost the locker room. That's why he's gone in, in, in my book. Um, and I think absolutely the front office have sort of made their bed and said, you know, we've set this high bar for us. This is where we want to be. And this is what fans can expect of us. But I feel that from my perspective, any, you know, a lot of people are going to say that. And I feel like you've got to read between the lines a little bit and see under the, the hype and the marketing and understand that, you know, they're not superhuman and in every decision they make. In fact, every decision they make is a gamble. 
Like they can put together as best as they can. But when you add in everything that we've had in this godforsaken year, it you just cannot 100%, 100% predict this. Now, they built up a lot of capital with the fans winning the MLS Cup. Having, I think we had a great season in 2019. And now some of that capital is being spent and burned. Yeah. So they will... I think they will answer to it. Uh, we can, we're only going to know in like a year's time when we've had the potential to play a full season mm-hmm. and really see some of these investments mature. Because we haven't, we haven't been able to see any of these new guys really do anything that, that we can really build a foundation on. No, and, and I'll say quickly before getting to Kevin, is that like, you know, the, we don't know every single manager that they interviewed, you know, right. uh, some, some, some big time European names have been kind of tossed to me that were part of the interview process. No, no one to like, you know, not like a Zidane or anything like that, but like some, you know, previously popular European managers were part of that. Now, GBS, uh, you know, Guillermo Bardos Escaloto, the LA Galaxy coach, was interviewed, as was Gabriel Milito, Milito who gave Ezekiel Barco his debut at Independiente. Now, I think. Was Frank DeBoer the better option? I mean, I guess now you could say no. And right. you look at the Galaxy and say, oh, like, who knows what GBS would have done in Atlanta. You know, I wrote about the, the options, and my critique of GBS wasn't necessarily that he was, like, really defensive. It was more like he just wasn't very inventive. Because at Boca Juniors, he Boca Juniors is a massive club. And the team that he had was stacked. I mean, they were just, like, good everywhere. But they had to face P.T. Martinez and Marcelo Gajardo's river plate, and they never got over that hump. And there were times where he did play a little safe in those big matches. But I think his his fault, and I think we still see it in, in L.A. a little bit, is that he's just not this, like, uber tactician. And, and that that was, you know, it was that's tough to follow after Tata Martino, who – who was a tactician, was a very strategic manager. Even though you kind of knew what you were going to get, he was very studious, very tedious, uh, very stubborn in his ways, and, and, and it came from a very philosophical place. But I still think GBS and Milito would probably have been better options than Frank DeBoer because of the background that they were coming from. They would have understood what, how to get perhaps – you know, how to maximize these South American players, just how to understand them mentally. Sure. Um, and the, I think that's where the big miss was. Um, and when they decided on Frank DeBoer and not on those other candidates, they essentially felt that that connection culturally was not as important as perhaps a long-term vision of evolution, ac- academy pipeline, et cetera. Well, and I think also it's important. Sorry, Kevin, last one. To have that sort of father figure or that sort of relationship with a coach, especially with younger players, because yeah. I feel like that's what Tata brought in. I feel like when Jose Mourinho was starting out in Porto, he had that with his players and was immensely successful because of that. And you see, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, same kind of deal. Right. Even, and even Jurgen Klopp uh, is is that type of man, man manager. You know, talk. Let's talk about our feelings, right? Um, and I think that's hugely underrated in in the game today. I think yeah. with the way players are today. I mean, yeah. you just need you need to have that balance. It can't just be 
you're a strictly man manager and you don't get results or you're strictly a disciplinarian and, and you're a tactician. I think there just has to be a balance. Yeah. I feel like us guys are a lot more emotional than we we like <laughs> to uh, project. And I feel like that needs to be taken care of in the locker room by a manager. Anyway, sorry, Kev. No, you're fine. Yeah, I mean, I think I've got a lot of different notes and, and I'm not really sure how to parse them out. But um, I guess I'll start with what kind of Beautiful started this whole discussion. Down. <laughs> I guess to start with what started off this whole conversation, which was uh, Ron's point about players coming in to play for a manager and, and sort of what those first few seasons sparked for Atlanta United, that situation and that condition is never going to exist for Atlanta United because there's not going to be players coming into a system with the manager being there. That happens at the beginning and then it happens when, players are rotated out through the roster over a manager tenure. And I think that's what started to happen with FDB over the past two years. So, you know, we're not going to have the luxury of all these players just necessarily coming in hot off the press out the gate because the club is already in existence. So you're already kind of fighting an uphill battle as a new manager to begin with and having to win over the players. And I think that there's a certain amount of respect that we have to give FDB for trying to take on that initiative, knowing the cultural differences that were going to be there in that case, regardless. And ultimately what I think led to his dismissal was those cultural differences because statistically speaking and talking wins and losses, I think that, you know, Felipe, you had a great point. Like he was really close to being better than Tata was, and for way better, yeah, fucking incredible season last year. And then you throw into the mix this year, and and the circumstances that plagued all of the league, not just Atlanta United. And you talk about you know Galaxy and what Galaxy are doing. Let's look across the league right now at major clubs that have major investments, like LA Galaxy, who has one point less than Atlanta United is behind the playoff line. LAFC is just holding on in seventh place in the West Eastern conference. DC United is all the way down next to the bottom. I mean, Atlanta United NYC, both below playoff line. Like this is not just a situation that is independent of Atlanta United and the managerial woes that it's had over the beginning of this season and the results that followed. Like, Tides ebb and flow. And when talking about the front office and who's accountable and what you expect out of the front office, I expect a front office that's going to value their manager and back them up to go after players, spend money and, and be ambitious in those signings, which I think all of us can agree aside from letting go of a couple of those players like Julian Gressel and LGP, which we don't really know the specifics or dollar amounts as to what led to that. We are a salary cap league and we have to adhere to things that other leagues around the world don't have to. And that comes with really tough decisions, but ultimately the front office has to back their manager, which I think that they did with Frank DeBoer. I mean, you you go out, you're spending money, you're you're consistently setting the bar for DP signings and how much you're willing to pay players and trying to still maintain a, a South American uh, player base and, and roster and lineup and, and trying to get younger players like Miles Robinson into a lineup, which we know FDB plays to FDB strengths in his tenure at Ajax. Like you have a front office backing him. You don't see the results, so what I expect a front office to do is to take their losses and pivot and adjust for that, which they also did 
in firing him and letting him go. Like, I don't see where this front office has taken missteps in being ambitious with the player signings and, and roster moves that they've made and having to get a new manager. Tata was gone no matter what, guys. Like, stop holding on to this. Like, there was some hope that we were going to keep him if we threw enough money at him. Like, he was gone regardless, and there was going to be a new manager in place. And if you look at the managerial prospects that were on the table, look at LA Galaxy. They're not doing a whole lot better than we are right now anyway. You know, it's it's all of these things that I think – the front office can't just be thrown out because we lost one game after we just got rid of our manager two games ago. And we still have all of these to Dan, to your point, we have these investments on the team. We have players that to your point, and I can't wait to hear Felipe back me up that I don't <laughs> think Barco is going to be sold for $30 million. However, I still think he's going to be an investment for the team. <laughs> I mean, speaking of risk, like, Barco is a huge risk for the club to even bring him. I mean, that was a big risk that they took and that you can argue whether or not it's it's really worked out. He is going to get sold. Thirty million, you know, I doubt it because you know, Miguel. Ooh, Albert, <laughs> oh Lord. I think I think timeline needs to be taken into account. It does, it does. But if if you look at Miguel Almarone was like a twenty, what, twenty seven million dollar transfer, they wanted thirty million for him in hindsight. You could probably, you know, side with Darren Eels for for having, you know, argued that 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 thirty million was important for Miguel Amaron. Not so much for for Ezekiel Barco, but just like totally different optics. Now, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's what I'll say about some of the things that Kevin said because I, I agree with a lot of it. But you know, like Tata Martino, yeah, I I'm not one hundred percent convinced that he wouldn't have stayed. Now, I remember at a scrum where we, he was still in, he was still in charge. And I think he had already perhaps announced. Yes. He had already announced that he was leaving at the end of the season. He was going to take the Mexico job. Like after all that speculation, he had finally come out and said, you know, yes, this is happening. Uh, the next time we were at pr- training and we got a hold of Tata, like all the reporters were there. Um, you know, he answered a question about like, who should be the coach? Like, have you, have you thought about that? Who should succeed you? And he, you know, kind of chuckled and, and gave kind of like a funny answer. But then he did say, seriously, I did give my recommendation. I seriously doubt that he recommended Frank DeBoer. I'm just. Let, That's let, a really good point. Yeah. Okay. I mean, oh. and, and this is a, a manager in Tata that knew what he had in those players. And, and I think in, when I met with him in Dallas, when I w- met with Tata Martino in Dallas in, in, in February, and I asked him at the end of our interview, just like, hey, what are your what's your opinion of like what's happened to Atlanta United since you left? You know, his I could tell it was like a guy that saw like someone had spray painted his masterpiece a little bit, you know, like and, and what he told me, it's in a story that I wrote that you guys can find the interview that I did about just like what how he wants to build, you know, El Tree and, and the Mexican national team. But it's essentially like, you know, they had the pieces for not only Atlanta United to be very, really good domestically, but the pieces were there for Atlanta United to be good internationally, to, to, to compete in that CONCACAF Champions League, but like legitimately compete. But in order to do that, you needed you needed those guys that we've talked about on on today's show. You needed LGP, you needed Darlin Tignabby, you needed Gressel, you needed Joseph, you needed perhaps even Parker's. Like you needed yeah, that. Maybe. Or, who? Or Miggy's. And then potentially yeah. Miggy before yeah. Miggy had to do right. I mean, yeah. his departure was prior to that transfer. 
well. Correct. I mean, Miggy is like, Miggy was going even like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Going, yeah. Even before Tata. But like, my point is, is that there was a moment where I feel like this, this story could have continued and not exactly the way it was under Tata, but clearly Tata saw, okay, if I were the front office decision maker on the next coach, I would bring in this guy to this day. I wish I would have asked him who he had recommended, but yeah. um, clearly it was probably someone from that South American tree that like Bielsa Tata type of relationship, that coaching tree that understood the players and that could kind of take them into, you know, the next phase of, of this club's history. But again, we can dwell on it, but I do think that going back to what this conversation sparked is that, in the end, the front office deserves a lot of credit for wh what this brand is, what this team is, what this club is. But just like they deserve credit and the capital that they've earned, they deserve to be criticized. And that, that's part of the job. It's not, it's yeah. not toxic. It's not, we're, we're, it's not, it's no one like, I'm not, not going to write hit pieces against Darren. Neal no, not at all. It's just like, that's just the, that's the nature of the job. And and again, it's a matter of what do you what do players or employees for that matter do with that criticism, and it's how they respond to it. And I think that this this front office being criticized by Frank DeBoer being appointed as manager, and and what was happening with the locker room was a mutual agreement of his departure. And I think that it, under criticism, it's responding to that and taking action. And had the front office continued with Frank DeBoer and had multiple more, you know, more player walk-offs and, and a dissension from the locker room, I think it'd be a completely different story. But from my perspective, the front office has done everything they can under that criticism and rightfully so to try to right the ship. And, yeah. and I hope that they continue to do so because – Without the front office backing whoever the next manager is, you know, manager's only as good as the players he has playing for him. And it's going to take a front office that's willing to invest in whoever that is and whatever they want to do with the team and making sure it aligns with those ideals of Atlanta United setting the bar for the league. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had one more. I had one more. Oh, I told you so, which was that I didn't, I wasn't on the show last week. But who did I say? Does anybody remember who I said was going to be the difference maker in the Orlando game? Uh, and does anybody? Uh, and does anybody remember who scoffed it off? I believe it was Dan James <laughs> who was like, "Oh, Mueller's not going to do anything. He's really, you know, he's he's not to be worried about. Lee has an assist and a goal in that game. You're welcome, Dan. Shut your mouth." But some terrible yeah. mental errors. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that that link up play between he DK and um, that was a nice Michelle. Goal. Yeah, 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 it was yeah, a very yeah. nice goal. That was that, yeah. that was that that's the chemistry that I feel like we should be striving for. Yeah. The way that those players just kind of seamlessly connected on all three of those passes and the movement off the ball. I mean, excellent point. Like, and you know what? I was while I'm watching. Actually, when I was watching Orlando in the MLS's back room, I was like, "Wow, this guy!" Like, and again, I, I've done deep dives in my head on Oscar, Oscar Pereja. I've watched him play in Colombia when I was a teenager for the teams in Cali. I was, my family's from Cali. He was a big time player for Deportivo Cali, not my squad. I'm a America de Cali fan. So all you, everyone watching the show, like Danny and Parcero, I know that those guys are big Cali fans. Um, Oscar Pereja has a history of playing a certain way as a player. And clearly as a coach, he wants to play this way as well. Like, combination play in the front in the in the final third 
kind of like freedom and a very just like Latin American, South American style that when I'm watching this game on Saturday, I'm like, that's who Atlanta want, not like who they want to be, but that's how they want to play. You know, that's how the players want to be, certainly. Yeah, they, they right. want to be the team that's like dinking and pinging guys and and, and you know, like one twos around guys and 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 you know showing off essentially. And and I thought that was again, if I were a diehard Atlanta United fan, what was most disheartening is that at times, at, at certain moments of that game, Orlando just like kind of punked. Atlanta and they they just look like the confident team they look like regardless of Atlanta scored on them or tied the match like they knew exactly what they were doing um and and even though they didn't have Pereira or Nani in they still had those moments of like whoa that's that's good combination play that looks nice that looks fluid you know you've got guys that aren't static that they're moving around they're attacking and they're pressing so I think overall and I've said this before like Atlanta has their own issues and they're dealing with them. And I think the front office is confident that they can get out of whatever situation they've put themselves in. But in the meantime, teams around MLS teams around Atlanta are getting better. I mean, that's just, that's what happens in this type of league where the parity remains, remains where it is that there's salary caps, that there isn't like a big time, you know, overspender. Uh, if you like one bad year and a bunch of teams can catch up with you. Yeah. And that's what also what makes the league fun, right? Like it yeah. sucks to be on the 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 bottom half of that, but I mean that's that's what makes MLS a, a fun league is that it's not just who has the deepest pockets that wins all the game that you see right. consist. I mean, you see some level of consistency in in teams over the years, but it's not the same teams winning championships year in and year out unless you're Toronto and Seattle of of late. But more or less, you see this rising and falling of teams regardless of of what you expect out of them year in and year out. Yeah, for sure. Um, I did want to point out real quick, Bill Holcomb's comment. And I don't know how many of you guys were listening to 92 nines broadcast as opposed to, to the uh, uh, Univision broadcast, but uh, Bill Holcomb saying, I did appreciate Nani getting his lip busted and the ref didn't care at all. Uh, that was a good <laughs> moment. One bright spot. I don't think I've heard. And I think it was Jason Longshore just going ballistic about Nani still being able to be on the field for as long as he did with just with uh, like wisdom tooth surgery gauze in his mouth. Just it's like it's not getting out onto the field, so the ref's not you know paying attention to it. But um, I thought I, it's it's I'm not very often Jason get incensed about something, and it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty uh, pretty entertaining to listen to. All we right, got voicemails, right? Yeah, we oh. got one voicemail. Yeah, we got one, one one voicemail from our buddy Joe Johnstone that I do want to play real quick. Um, Go ahead, Felipe, wanna... while he's pulling it up. Uh, no, I remember like the the penalty, the non penalty on Brooks Lennon. Um, when I saw the play, immediately I was like, "Whoa, high high boot! That's going to be a PK." I kept watching the replay, and I, I don't remember who tweeted. Someone tweeted to me that I I needed to delete my tweet. I don't delete tweets, guys, unless unless there's, unless there's a terrible typo that I can't live with. Like, I'm not deleting my tweet. <laughs> the the play in hindsight, I understand why Brooks Lennon thought it was a PK. I, I understand why every Atlanta United fan thought it was a PK. But the more I, I watched it, it's like Antonio Carlos had already cleared the ball, and at the, when he cleared by the, by the time he cleared the ball, Brooks Lennon had already turned his back. And yeah, I think there was there was an intent to kind of 
clear and you know what keepers do is it if you're a goalkeeper and you're watching this come on you know what goalkeepers do they come out they catch the ball and they stick their knee out they take they take a little piece of you you know just to let you know come in here again and this is going to happen i thought that's what that defender was doing antonio carlos was like i'm clearing this ball is anyone is in front of me think twice because here comes my boot the ref determined that i think that's what he saw he saw a player that had already cleared the ball, wasn't as reckless as it looked. Clearly, he almost chopped Brooks's, <laughs> Brooks Lennon's head off. Um, but I think that's – that when I when I saw the Twitter, like, alerts going crazy, the only thing I thought was that's not why Atlanta United lost the game. You know, that, that's, not, that's not what lost the game. Had it been a PK and they converted, yes, it would have been a totally different last 10, 15 minutes. But – I thought it was hilarious that someone told me like Felipe, please delete that tweet. And I like read it. I'm like, I don't see any typos. So yeah, yeah live with it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, there's there's nothing you could do to go change it. Nah. I think I think one one counter to that is like, I mean, that was an incredibly high foot. It and the guy's like eight seven though. But the the other thing is like, if you're sliding in to take a ball and you you clear the ball from sliding that but then the other the player the standing player stays there and you happen to clatter into him i mean you'll get a yellow card for that yeah, yeah. so i don't i don't know i thought it was gross i thought it was a yellow card but yeah, yeah. it doesn't it, you, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter yeah, to that point i mean we we didn't finish our chances either like that was that right. was part of it too is like we had i mean between so wait, we're about finishing chances now it's not just, no yeah yeah. yeah, just to go back to the chemistry uh, point too with Oscar Perea's uh, Orlando City team is like we can't expect to get that right now with an ever-changing front three or front whatever you want to call it, attacking four or five. It's just those guys I don't feel like right now are have enough time to play together in an actual match situation where they're in that chemistry on the field. And it's going to be – I don't know when we'll see that. I don't, I don't know when that'll come in. Um, I do want to play this real quick. I mean, FDB didn't have that either. Good evening. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's been a minute since I've been in the trap, but we're able to call in. And I've just been kind of down lately. And I was trying to figure out like, if it was our form or if it was just the overall tactics. And I realized finally what it was. I miss Frank DeBoer's sexiness. I, know, I just can't get over it. it. <laughs> I wish he was here. I hope you guys have a great night. Bye. My favorite part about that is Google Voice does transcriptions, and it um, it took sexiness <laughs> as vulgarity, so it's just S with a bunch of asterisks. <laughs> <laughs> like we're, we're to the point now, like on, mm. on basic cable, after 10 p.m., you could say fuck. But like okay. Google still somehow is uh, <laughs> trying to censor sexiness. Like, uh, I mean, listen, Frank knew how to dress. He knew how to dress on the sideline. Uh, I remember this is a funny story. He came on. He met with us at a, like a typical Tuesday afternoon scrum and we we're all waiting for him. And he usually would like literally run from the training ground or from the training pitch and just like show up for his you know 15 minutes with us. And he was always early, always early. Okay, never late. I mean, just very, very European. Very like that's that's exactly what they wanted in that club. The guy was like on time all the time. So one day 
instead of showing up early, he was like actually slightly late, maybe like one or two minutes late. And instead of coming from the training ground, he was already like dressed, you know, showered, ready to go. And I think they were going to leave for some road trip immediately after that. And he was wearing, I mean, they were kind of short shorts, like, you know, kind of like skinny jorts style. Like, I mean, I would, they were European cut. I would probably rock them. They're, they're European cut. I like the European cut. I would wear those, but it was just kind of like shocking for some of the reporters. And like someone asked him about his shorts. And I just remember him being like, what? (laughs) He was not phased at all. He was like, this is yeah like uh, i think he even like made an old navy joke like you can probably find these at old navy uh, <laughs> so, like a lot of the reporters and i like will dm and we'll talk about like you know frank DeBoer away from the post-game press conferences where i honestly sometimes he would get in trouble like with you know throw a player under the bus or criticize a player or whatever away from that kind of setting and just like the small talk before the the microphones go on a great guy, extremely gracious, kind of fun, like the type of guy that you could banter with. And he was down. Uh, It just, he just didn't really have a filter when it came to like the official interview, but I'll never forget the jorts, the short, the short skinny shorts that he wore. I thought he wore them well, no socks, white sneakers. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. Yeah. Those, those, those shoes are probably oh, yeah. only good for like two two wears with the, no socks on, right? Like that's yeah, no, it's probably the no shows, dude. Come on, give us some credit. Or those, uh, th- like just go and grab a box of what they have at DSW sitting in the aisle that you could put on the little. Yeah, it's basically the, the little, no shows. Uh, yeah. They have they have cotton no shows like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just like a, like the sole of your foot of the pantyhose. It's like they exactly. took pantyhose, cut off, <laughs> just cut off the foot. And that's put all it you the, need. Put it that's in all the box. You need. That's the PPE I need. Like that's something to soak it up. Yeah. Something to soak yeah, it up. Exactly. Okay, we got heavy uh, heavy week ahead. We have two games this week. We uh, we play. Obviously, we skipped the match um, in Miami last week, but the return fixture, which is end up being the first fixture of the uh, of the home and home with them, is on Tuesday or Wednesday, excuse me, um, at Mercedes Benz Stadium at seven o'clock, and then on uh, Saturday, we go down to Exploria Stadium and uh, and play Orlando City. I mean, Dan, how are you feeling going into this? Just knowing the crapshoot that we've had in the past week, um, and and the lineup questions and the the roulette that we've essentially been playing with these lineups the past past couple games how do you feel going into wednesday and then and then a short turnaround to go back down to to play orlando uh yeah i'm not looking forward to playing orlando again though to be fair i don't think we had mental lapses that led to the goals um but we did have some bright spots you know i mean you you play that that game five times maybe we win two of them so I think right now, I mean, I of course I'm a Lan United bias, but um, we probably won't beat Orlando City in Orlando, um, and I'm not I'm not that confident against Miami, but I'm more confident against Miami than I am Orlando. So I'd take a win against Miami, and we'll probably lose against Orlando. And what about you, Felipe? Are you allowed to prognosticate? I can. I I tend to like stay away from predictions, but I'll predict. I mean, I I think if the win, 
the most the more likely win is against Inter Miami at home because I think it, it just the the optics of that game though make it a toss up because Inter Miami they're coming off a loss as well they need a win I think they have the uh, unlike Atlanta United they have a pretty decent and developing identity. Uh, they know how to play. I, I think they're pretty clean on the ball. They're pretty confident on the ball. You know, they're not like super high pressing. They're more of like if they'll catch guys in bad positions. Like I would look at someone like Brooks Lennon, George Bellow, like the wingers that we've discussed that are going to be on the touchline in t- tight spaces. Those are the guys that, that Inter Miami loves to press and turn over and go. So like, Atlanta did not do well under pressure against Orlando. They have to fix that. They have to be ready to play against a team that will pressure them, like do a midfield press. How do they play through that? But they're at home. It's it's Even though there's not 70,000 people at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, I think Atlanta will be more ready for that match than they will be perhaps for Orlando when they have to travel um, and they're playing against a team that they've already faced and the, that, that, that beat them. And, you know, on Saturday, I think Nani will start, Pereira will start for Orlando. So it's going to be a different lineup. The game against Inter-Miami, I think, is is a 50-50 toss-up. I think either team can win that game. I didn't yeah, pre- I think, Kevin, I'm hoping we see Barco play a full 90. We saw him come in late against Orlando. I think if, if Barco's playing the full match against Miami, I'm more confident in a win. Um, but – even with him on the field, knowing a, a full healthy lineup out of Orlando and what just happened along with travel, I think maybe best case three points, worst case one out of the two matches. That's maybe a draw against Miami. You know, Boko, Boko, it's funny. Cause like we, you know, we, we, we're kind of convinced he's not a $30 million player, but some of us are. He, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wrote a piece. Listen, I wrote a story on him before COVID, and I was like, "There's, there's nothing that this, guy, this that he has to prove in MLS. He's going, he's going to be a big time sale. the The dollar amount is up in the air. Could be twenty. Agreed. Could be, could be fifteen. Oh. Like whatever it is, this guy's done enough. Like whatever it is, it's not thirty. Is what you're saying? Not, it's <laughs> Thirty-one. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it's twenty-nine. <laughs> no, it's thirty million and one euro. Yeah, uh, Arsene Wenger. Uh, but transfer. speaking of Barker, you know he did not play against Nashville, and Atlanta win the game. But there are still times where, like, you're watching and you're like, "Come on, like pace of pay, pace of play it needs to be faster. It needs to be faster." Uh, you know, Rosetto very good on the ball, very like really good on the ball. Really, it looks really classy on the ball, but he's not, he's not a guy that yeah. turns you and goes like, yeah. that's just not who he is. And you saw against Orlando, as soon as literally his first touch, Barco comes on and his first touch is straight to, uh, Eric Rometty and Eric Rometty just like, boom, just like leaves it, leaves it in, like, so you can run onto it. Uh, in midfield, and Barco just kind of like cuts through two guys, and it was like the pace that Atlanta yeah. hadn't seen for 45, 50 minutes. So right. that's how important that type of player can be. So to your I mean, point, that's what Miggy did our his entire tenure, right? Like he, you could depend on that guy to just to just disrupt any shape that your opponent thought that they could depend on. And and right now, opponents know that we might not get broken down, so let's just like chill. 
Um, and a yeah. player like Barco, you know, can do that. Yeah. yeah, he needs especially to especially if they're trying to congest the midfield the way Orlando did, and and you know you've got a player that can run right through it in Barco mm-hmm. and and force those players to move and adjust and maybe yeah. free up somebody like Pity or Joseto up front. So how do you how do you guys think? Do you guys think we have a chance against? I guess I haven't said anything yet about the predictions, but um, I mean, if we see a, a match fit Kubo Torres up front as opposed to an Adam John. And then you have Barco playing a full 90. Like, what does that do to this team in terms of confidence, in terms of pace of play, in terms of um, variability in their in their uh, attacking threat? I mean, it, it seems like the team becomes a lot less predictable um, going into uh, going into these games against Miami and Orlando. If, if those guys, I think, are playing and playing, you know, near 90 minutes. Well, less predictable, but I don't know if it's more more successful or more, more promising. Right. Cause like even a, a, even a healthy Kubo Torres is you're, you're resting on his tenure with players that he had already been playing with. And he's sort of getting into the mold with this new team and, and getting his feet under him. So I don't know that, that necessarily guarantees results. I mean, it may be more promising, but um, I, I don't know. Go ahead, Dan. I think we could see Kubo start because glass said that, He's not match fit yet, but we're never going to really know that until we start him in a match oh, and see, see where he goes. Yeah, I thought he would start against Orlando, but he, he didn't. Yeah, so I'm I'm hoping to see him start. I, I'm hoping to see Barco start. I, I feel like the game against Miami could be the most healthiest squad that we've seen mm-hmm. um, in recent in the recent past. So it, it could be great. I'm wondering, I don't think... In Miami are as disciplined as Orlando. So, you know, when Orlando would have, when we would turn the ball over them, they were pretty good about getting back and maybe giving up a little bit of space just so they could get defensively organized. Whereas Nashville, you know, they would pressure Brad Guzan right off the jump. But then, you know, you've got two, three guys up the top and they would leave tons of space for us to pass it to. So, um, I don't know. I, I'm hoping for a win against Inter Miami. It'll make me feel better, but I'm not hopeful of. Yeah. <laughs> well, that. I mean, what yeah. we all talked about in the position that Atlanta's in right now is that the sky's the limit and nothing's off the table. And Bill Holcomb kind of mentions it, which is why start John again? You're not going to get what you need with him, and there's nothing left to learn about what he can do. I completely agree. In, in a season that we've all kind of taken an agreement is kind of a wash and there's nothing really there to expect or assume about it. Why not start somebody new up top whenever you've repeatedly gotten the same results Mm -hmm. with uh, a a consistent face up front. And I think that's more of maybe the fans are taken as a wash. I know I've said I have, but I don't think the players are. Oh no, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, I think Gustavo game makes a good comment in the trap. We will win because we don't have nothing to lose. We already lost a coach, a style of play, and some good players. Miami is not even a consolidated team. I mean, that's a good point. It is. It's an interesting point. I would say it's an interesting point because I think Inter Miami is like they're literally in diapers. Like you don't know much about them. They don't even have a sponsor on their shirt yet. Right. Not even a real football team. (laughs) Uh, But I think there's 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 talent there. There, like I said before, there's a developing style of play that they seem pretty confident in. 
Um, and and they they can win. The, I think they can beat good teams. They've been really competitive. They were competitive in their very first match at LAFC. They lost one nil. Uh, so so they're not a bad team. I think if you start Kubo Torres against Inter Miami, I think it's an interesting little nugget that he was you know LGP's teammate at Club Tijuana. So LGP knows plenty about him. He knows how he plays. He knows that he's a physical striker. He knows that he's a better finisher inside the box. Um, but but I think Atlanta United needs that. I think that's the sure. one thing that they did just do not have. And you've seen it in some of these matches. Like There's a chance in the box. And the guy that's set to finish is Brooks Lennon, who isn't a finisher. Um, and then and if you're relying on Adam John, sometimes like as a target striker, he's needing to do a little bit more in build up and then he's he has to turn and get into the box. It's just like it just hasn't worked. You know, I was one of the people that when Frank was still coach, I felt like, why not just get as much out of Adam John as you can? Like you clearly do not have a replacement for Joseph Martinez. You don't have a like for like for him. You don't have a, that type of striker. Do everything you can to build around a target striker. He didn't do that. He told me, and then he, then he told me in the interview, you just didn't think that, you know, Adam John was the right striker for him. Uh, but Kubo Torres, I think if you start him with Barco, you're going to get, they're going to be a little bit more dynamic. And I, I Absolutely. think, you know, Kubo mm-hmm. is not like this polished, uh, you know, finesse striker. I think he's more of like a very opportunistic. Like uh, a Wando. Yeah. Like he'll, he'll crash the goal. He'll, he'll mess with his defenders. And, and you know what? Like Atlanta is lacking a little bit of that too. They don't have that, like that spice, you know, that like attitude that a lot of players from the, you know, the previous, like, you know, cycle were able to kind of drum up and get them through games. So I think Kuba will start to your point. Steven Glass doesn't know if he can play 90, doesn't know if he can play 65, but I think at this point you've got to start him. Yeah. Yeah. I think the counterpoint is, Sorry, Tim. Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think the counterpoint, you know, Kubo knows what LGP can do as well. So, I mean, he's got that advantage. And, you know, you just hope he can bait him into a red card at some point. That's my thought, too. Yeah. <laughs> that would be that would be yeah. a pretty big hope. Um, yeah, I'm hoping to see the speed out there. I mean, Brian saying Barco, PD, Dom, and Kubo. Give me that all day, every day for the rest of the season, whatever the rest of the season is. Give me all that speed. And a guy who's scrappy and um, industrious inside the box, like Kubo Torres has proven to be over the years, um, especially in MLS. And, you know, I, I like our chances a lot better now um, with everybody getting healthy. Not to mention we're essentially getting um, a, a fresh player in, in Franco Escobar coming back off of that retroactive suspension that he, he served against Orlando. So um, it'll be interesting to see him come back. I think we get the win against Miami. I think that they have, I don't, again, I mean, to Gustavo's point, they're not a consolidated team. Uh, I, th- I think that the the, pro- the final product's not there from them. You see flashes of Pizarro um, in, in their attack with Carranza, and they look like a team for the future, and I think they're, they're going to be well-built going in, and they're going to be a fun team to play against and watch us play against, but they're not there yet. And I think that, um, I think as long as we get, you know, a one-goal lead, uh, maybe at the beginning, I don't. I think that we could probably uh, go in. I was about to say that. I was like, this is not like super like tactical breakdown type of thing, but I think that is the exact that is the type of game that whoever scores first 
could could potentially win that game. I mean, yeah. they're, they're both teams that that can be easily deflated if they're down just because of what's happening around the club. You know, like in Miami, all the buzz, all the hype, and they're they've won one game. Atlanta United, we know we've covered everything that's going on, and, and they've shown uh, they've struggled when they get scored on first. It's it's something that they they have not been able to really overcome. So that first goal in that match. <laughs> going to be huge it's going to be huge to see who 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 reacts and how they react yeah for sure and i think in four years i don't think i've seen this team be able to come back from uh from a deficit especially an early deficit um and then to your point i, I can't remember who? Who atlanta huh atlanta well i feel like okay maybe year one but san maybe, jose maybe i'm crazy yes <laughs> that's that's true that's true yeah fair point almost fair LAFC point. It, it in yeah. los angeles that's a fair point. Um, I can't remember who said it earlier. It's like one good half doesn't win you a game, but one yeah. bad half like we had against Orlando will absolutely lose you a game. Yeah. Like you I can't, agree with that. Like you can, you can, you can, I think if you can avoid having a shit half <laughs> against, especially <laughs> against Orlando again on Saturday, I think that we'd be in, in decent shape. I, the Daryl DK scares me, especially going into the future. Yeah. That, that kid is, he's big, he's physical. He can play a ball and he can, he can, uh, I, I don't see any like holes in his game currently. And I, I don't know how long he stays in Orlando. He is also an example, a shining example, as much as I hate to say it for that team, but he is a shining example of what you can get out of an MLS uh, super draft. Right. So yeah. it's, um, yeah. a good yeah, he's the guy that scares me far more than Dom Dwyer. The prospects of Dom Dwyer, even at his best probably ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a guy that I think we have to we have to figure out going into into Saturday's match. But yeah, I I think we get the win against Miami. I think we lose against Orlando again, unfortunately. But, yeah, no. yeah. I don't think I'd be so depressed if it wasn't Orlando. You know, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Very true. <laughs> I mean, we're nowhere we're, to go but up. I didn't feel right. like. I mean, I felt like on Saturday. Considering it was the first time Atlanta and I ever lost to Orlando, like clearly the fans, Atlanta was disappointed, but there was a lot of like, yeah, but yeah, right. 2020, you know, yeah, 20, right. exactly. 2020. Yeah. <laughs> so we could, we could throw that up in their fans' face for the rest of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hindsight is never not 2020 is. anymore. Yeah. Right. Oh, damn. Yeah. Oh, God. Hey, it's kind of content you get right here. Oh boy! On that note, we're gonna wrap it up here. Uh, Felipe, <laughs> where can where can the people find you and everything that you've been doing lately? Of course, yeah. Follow me on Twitter at Felipe Carr, and please subscribe to the Athletic. Uh, that's where you can read all my stories. That's why we write at the Athletic for you guys, for the subscribers, for the readers. So, jump on my Twitter, go to my profile, hit that link, and subscribe. Yeah, absolutely. And what about you boys? Tim, where can they find you? Um, you can find me just on Instagram on at Tim Herb. <laughs> I don't Damn. I don't I don't tweet anymore. It's it's I, I go down a I, yeah, I just we just I, can't I just use the show consumer. page at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And even that's <laughs> hit or miss. Dan, what about you? Uh, you can find me at DNJMS. Find me at the architect. That's at the underscore ARC number one T E C T collectively at home before dark. That's before spelled B and the number four. Thank you again, Felipe, for coming on with us, man. It's been, we do have one question from our trap faithful. Felipe, what do you order at Arby's? Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Terrible. That's a good one. 
I mean, listen, it's been a while since I've had Arby's. I, will, I mean, growing up, my dad loved Arby's, and that was like, if we wanted fast food, he'd take us there. I just got the number one, the regular roast beef sandwich. I love their fries, though. They have awesome fries. But I've yeah. not had Arby's literally probably in a decade or so. So well, I don't we'll, know fix that. we'll fix that next time we're at the bins. We'll make sure we, we get you some. <laughs> oh man, great question. Tommy, uh, you got me on the spot there, man. Jeez. <laughs> Arby's question. Yeah, we're not all we're we're not all meat mountain men as much as, <laughs> exactly. as much as we'd like to be. Uh or, exactly. Uh, sometimes you need a big Montana to, exactly. to as as your nightcap. That's what yeah. <laughs> well, I had a good time. Invite me anytime. This is good. This is fun. I hope that I hope the audience had a good time. I think, I think we had a good and nice little chat. Yeah, I mean, we normally run yeah, about an hour, and we went almost double that. So uh, I think yeah. that speaks vo speaks volumes, figuratively and literally. Uh, and props on the the Larry Peach in the background. I see, by the way, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. great artist. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again, man. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. As always, be home before dark. Ah, Miami sucks. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.